The Secret Podcast, available on iTunes. And now your hosts, JM and Bernstein. Welcome, Key Searchers, to another edition of The Secret Podcast. JM here, and we're up to 10 cities at this point of the series. And every month, exciting things seem to be happening in the world of The Secret. Joining me, per the usual, from St. Augustine, Florida, is Mr. Burnstyle, George Ward. Welcome back to the show. We have another packed episode for everybody. Thank you, Sir John, the treasure hunter. <laughs> it's going to be your new nickname. I'm sorry. Yeah, and a new running joke takes hold on episode 10 here. What do we got for everybody this month? We're talking about Charleston, where I just, I guess I spent, you know, vacation down there for a couple of days during the hurricane, which was fun. Wasn't a lot of rain. Like, Charleston, they don't know how to do hurricanes. That was kind of a lame hurricane. <laughs> it was, man. It was it was like a slight drizzle. Well, it was the Donald's hurricane, right? Like it wasn't going to happen. And then he said, no, if I said we're having a hurricane, we're going to have a hurricane. <laughs> that hurricane was the wettest hurricane in terms of water. <laughs> the wettest water. All right. And you heard the other laughter. Also this month joining us for the show is Mr. Palancar. Mr. Kit Palancar. The less important one. The junior. Hello. Thanks for having me. Kit is, of course, John Palancar's son. He is an extremely talented artist in his own right, as well as an art teacher at Akron University. Kit is the artist we've chosen to do the painting for the tribute hunt. We'll talk to him about carrying on the legacy of his father's work and what he thinks about the original puzzle himself a little later on. But he will be sitting in with us for the entire episode. I don't know why. We do get annoying after a while, you know this. <laughs> As we go over Charleston so he can crack jokes and throw in his two cents when he wants to. Kit, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm sure you guys will be teaching me a whole lot through this talk as well, because some of this stuff I don't even know about myself. You know, I know a little bit about some of them, but sure as hell, I haven't really delved into Charleston at all. Interesting to hear some other takes on it. The research and the time that goes into hunting for these and looking at clues. In this you have no idea, dude. This will ruin your life. You have no idea. <laughs> I can't wait. Let's ruin some lives today. Okay. So a little bit later on, we're going to talk to Kit about some of his work and some follies that he's had trying to work on the puzzle in the past and some other humorous things. But for now, we will move on to image two, verse six. TJ Gray, one of our team members, was going to be on the podcast this episode and explain his Charleston theory while George and I commented on things. Unfortunately, TJ had something come up at the last minute. I got together with him earlier today, got some notes. I'm going to present his theory and go over it with George, who's been spending some time down in the Charleston area. He's been down there on two or three occasions. On one occasion, we were both down there, spent a day at the library going to different areas of the city, and it was you did an EMS call and yeah, that was fun. It was an interesting place. I mean, it, we got rained on the second day, but the research at the library was really cool. They really had a pretty good collection of historical stuff there. And something we learned after that, the ladies that work at the library are super, super nice. One of our, uh, it was Forrest had some questions about something in Charleston and he just emailed them and they sent back gobs of information for him. Research is their life there and they're very good at it and very helpful. Yeah, they were extremely helpful to us. I think we had like an hour or hour and a half before it was closed. And I went up to the desk and I asked her for a certain amount of things on certain areas. And she directed me to the section. Here's 50 pictures you've never seen before. And it was fantastic. 
the proposed solution I'm reading of TJ's is not new. It's not totally original in research. Like most veteran hunters, he made use of pre-existing information from online boards, Quest for Treasure, his own research, and he just furthered the research that was kind of already out there with his own boots on the ground investigating. This theory that we're going to go over dates back at least three or four years it may be longer. As we go through it, George and I will comment on any recent info we've uncovered or discovered down in the Charleston area since that time. For the most part, this is TJ's theory, but he wanted to express that his work is the culmination of many other hunters' work over the years, and it's a good example of the importance of previous research and maintaining some of the records that go back 10 or even 15 years on this thing. As we know, things disappear and change photographs and online accounts of things from different time periods can be very important. Why don't we start with the image so we can verify the city? That's the first step. If you look at the image too, it's a giant lion on the image with a tree branch going across the bottom of it and Fort Sumter hanging from a thread from the tree branch with, was it four o'clock, George? Yeah, yeah. It's about four o'clock. Right, and then there's a mask underneath the lion and a few other things, a fairy with some wings. We'll talk about it. But in the mane, the hair of the lion, if you look, there's four sets of numbers in there. You'll find a 33 and a 79 on the left side. And then on the right side, you'll find a 32 with the two actually being upside down and the 80 on the other side of the main there. These coordinates, if you look at it, the square of these coordinates on a map, it points to a whole lot of ocean and the city of Charleston. Not to mention there's a map of Charleston embedded into the top of the mask in the image. We can be pretty sure that we're trying to look for something in Charleston. Would you agree, George? Yeah, it's pretty hard to debate like the giant picture of Charleston in the middle of the image and the fort. This is probably not going to be in Eugene, Oregon. <laughs> Okay, so now we know the image represents Charleston, we have to match a verse to it. The commonly referred verse that goes with this image is verse uh, 6, George, right? Yes. Verse 6 has a literary connection hidden inside the verse, which also links it to Charleston. And this is going to come from a, one of our favorite books, George, Abroad in America, again, the same book where we found a useful piece of information for another verse, right? The Nola St. Charles. So yeah, same book. The St. Charles Hotel, there was a quote in there which tied New Orleans to the verse. The same book, ironically, happens to tie a reference to Charleston to this verse. And it comes from a quote in reference to Edward Wilmont Blyden. The line in verse 6, which reads, Edwin and Edwina were named after him. This event took place in Charleston, South Carolina. The exact excerpt reads like this. Many in Charleston sought from Blyden news of the South Carolinans who had emigrated a dozen years before. He was enthusiastically welcomed. He even had twin babies named after him, Edwin and Edwina Wilmont Blyden, during his stay. Now we have a line from the verse which references South Carolina, specifically Charleston, and an image with a map of Charleston. So I'm pretty sure we can use these two together to focus our attention on Charleston here. Are you in agreement so far, George? I know we like to split hairs on a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah, so far we're good. All right, this is a first now. <laughs> While we're on this, let's look at another literary connection that we find in the verse. 
It's from a poem by Robert Louis Stevenson entitled To the Hesitating Purchaser, which actually is kind of the preface or preamble. Uh, It starts the book Treasure Island. The poem reads like this. If sailor tales to sailor tunes, storm and adventure, heat and cold, if schooners, islands, and maroons, and buccaneers and buried gold, and all the old romance retold exactly in the ancient way, can please as me they pleased of old, the wiser youngsters of today. So be it and fall on, if not, if studious youth no longer crave, his ancient appetites forgot. Kingston or Ballantine the Brave, or Cooper of the Wooden Wave, so be it also, and may I, and all my pirates share the grave where these and their creations lie. That's the beginning of the Treasure Island book, and there's some specific lines in here which are more than just a coincidence. Specifically, uh, if sailor tales to sailor tunes, and all the old romance retold, can please as me, they pleased of old, the wiser youngsters of today. So those lines match extremely close to the opening lines of verse 6, which are, Of all the romance retold, men of tales and tunes, cruel and bold, seen here by eyes of old. Now, George, some people think the eyes of old references the eyes of the lion. What do you think? I don't know. I don't know. Like, there's really nothing to tie that to. It's just poetic. It's nice. It's a nice way to start the verse. Yeah, I think he really wanted to use Treasure Island for a specific reason, and he did. He couldn't plagiarize the work, and he didn't want to make it too obvious. I, I think he did a pretty good job of disguising that inference in there. Yeah. It also gives us some clues to research. If you dig deeper into the poem, they talk about Cooper of the Wooden Wave, and this is a reference to Joseph Cooper the pirate who ironically met his demise by a ship called the HMS Diamond. And there's some more of this really weird coincidental stuff going on later on we'll get to. So he dies in a battle with the HMS Diamond, which is the jewel for the image two here. So the line about Cooper connects the verse through the poem to the diamond in the image, and it goes a step further and proposes a place to look for the diamond, which are the last two lines of the poem. And all my pirates share the grave where these and their creations lie. Now, there's a monument at White Point Garden that we're going to talk about later. And just so I just keep this verse in mind, these last two lines of the Stevenson poem, when we get a little further down the line. If we look at our visual clues, there's also some things that lead us to White Point Garden. First off, we have what looks like a giant pear hanging from the tree branch on the left side of the image, lower left side. Now, there's a famous bridge leading into Charleston called the Pearman Bridge, which has now been replaced with another bridge. But in 1980, it was the Pearman Bridge. If you follow this bridge into Charleston, it puts you directly on Cannon Street. Ironically, cannons come into this too, but it puts you right on Cannon Street. And it's hard not to notice the giant lion on the image, the king of the jungle. And interestingly enough, Cannon Street dead ends right at King Street, And if you take King Street all the way down to the ocean, that's White Point Garden right there. By the culmination of clues present in both the image and the verse, White Point Garden sure seems to stand out as a contender. There's some other fringe clues in the image, uh, matches to the cannons, 
maybe refers to Cannon Street from the Pearman Bridge, if you're looking at it in the sense of a map. The points of the ferry's wings being white, white point garden. Now, to be fair, as we've been accused of being somewhat one-sided on some of the info we present, there are some people who are looking around Fort Moultrie and on Sullivan's Island, and we're not discounting or discouraging any theories. I think it'd be hard to dig there, but... No, no, no. It wouldn't be hard to dig at that fort. You would have to be absolutely insane to even try to put a shovel in the ground at that fort. That fort's like the Castillo de San Marcos. You cannot... There's no way you can dig at that fort. I'm sorry. The biggest proponent, his name is James, for that fort. I have a friend that works for the national parks, that works in Charleston, a, a very good friend. We asked him for permission to probe. He allowed me to probe James's spot, but only if he was the one holding the probe, he did the probing himself, and we did it at night when no one was around at like 4 o'clock in the morning. It is crazy. You will never be able to dig at that part. And it's so funny because people will look in places that it's clearly not a place that you're going to want to try to dig a hole at either in 1980 or now. I think there's some things that you would just rule out by common sense, but, you know, people are digging at the Wright Brothers Memorial. There's very few rules in this book, right? And one of them is it's not in a cemetery. The one thing that everybody wants to dig next to is a giant grave at the fort. Like, it's in the, it's one of the only rules. <laughs> <laughs> that it's not in a graveyard. Don't dig up the graves. People do get manic about this. It's pretty crazy. Going back to what I was saying, we're, we're not discounting anybody's theories. We're just presenting TJs. But there are people looking on Sullivan's Island, and there's some pretty good theories that you can find on Quest for Treasure about how you get to Sullivan's Island, and I would encourage you to look at them. It's not bad to do research, so check it out. But for now, we'll focus on TJ's proposed ideas at White Point Garden and the evidence that supports it. That's the area kind of where you were looking around too, right, George? That same park, right? I've been looking at White Point Gardens exclusively since I started working on Charleston, you know, maybe a year ago, a year and a half. Well, not exclusively. I mean, take note that George did go out and probe someone else's spot for them. I've probed a lot of Was it Washington Square? Where's that one with the statue of the two kids? I probed there for somebody. You looked there once. I looked at the fort. We had a little adventure there. Yeah. <laughs> People ask us to go places, and if we're there, you know, why not? If somebody in San Francisco can't go and we're there, well, I'll check it out. Not necessarily mean I buy the solve, but I'll check it out for you. George will look. With the Stevenson quote about the pirates and where they're buried, how ironic is it that when we get to White Point Garden, we find the Steed Bonnet Monument? Uh, I just referred to this a little while ago, and it reads on it, Near this spot in autumn of 1718, Steed Bonnet, notorious gentleman pirate, and 29 of his men captured by Colonel William Rett met their just desserts. I love that it says just desserts right on the monument. Met their just desserts after a trial and charge famous in American history by Chief Justice Nicholas Trott. Later, 19 of Richard Worley's crew captured by Governor Robert Johnson were also found guilty and hanged. All were buried off of White Point Gardens in the marsh beyond low watermark. Here we have a mass pirate grave associated with White Point Gardens and the Stevenson reference. It's, it's all looking pretty uh, interesting. Yes. Yes. Yes, it is. It is. I mean, it's, you can't deny that there's a little bit of mystique going on here with all the pirates and the... You know, the old-timey uh, wording of the verse. It, it's all very nostalgic. 
being at White Point Garden, where all this history is and the Civil War history, the canons, the emancipation history, which we'll get into in a little bit, it's kind of cool to go there. And it's a cool place to be. I mean, I've been there several times. George has been there several times. It's kind of a neat place. That park is beautiful. Like, I love everything about White Point Gardens. I could stay there all day. It's kind of like Magnolia Avenue, where it's just this picturesque scene of all these old oak trees, these live oaks. You can hear the waves crashing in and all the the historical cannons, and it's pretty cool. Charleston is known for being the Old South, right? It's traditional South. Everything in Charleston is traditional South. Sweet tea that'll give you diabetes. (laughs) Cornbread so dry that it sucks all the moisture out of your body. And White Point Gardens is the pinnacle of that. The gardens are beautiful. Everyone there is super polite and nice, and it's just great. It's like the cover shot for Southern Living. You know, exactly. You can imagine that. So moving on down the verse here, the next line that we're going to look at is stand and listen to the birds. This verse line could be straightforward. It could be a riddle. It could be both. There's a bandstand in the middle of White Point Garden. Perhaps it's referring to the bandstand. Listen to the birds is a strange direction for us to locate a specific area to dig up a treasure. So that right there puts the red flag up for me. Like, you know, what is this supposed to mean? Is this some kind of clue or riddle? Yeah, this one's pretty easy. (laughs) White Point Gardens is full of live oaks and it butts up to the ocean. There's tons of gulls and night herons all over the place. You can literally stand and listen to the birds almost anywhere you are in the park. However, there's a bit of wordplay or trickery that might be going on here. There's benches all over Charleston specifically in White Point Garden. And all the armrests of these benches have a side with an oval design, and it has a bird, which we can also find in the image, image two, in the fairy's wings. Now, I don't know if this is a play directing us to sit on a bench and stand. Is a, you know, I don't really understand haha, what he's uh, getting at here with stand and listen to the birds. What do you think that that means in the context of a park with birds everywhere? When I first started looking at this, I keep everything simple as possible. The words stand and listen to the birds held a very, very specific meaning to me, but it won't make sense to anybody until the end. So after we go through TJ's thing, I'll give you my you know, original solve at Charleston. And I'll explain stand and listen to the birds in the way, at least the way I took it in the simplest way possible. Okay. We look forward to that. Let's move on to the next line for now, which is another strange and tricky kind of line. It says, hear the cool song of water. We're right next to the ocean. If you're standing on East Battery, you can hear the waves crashing in from there. If you're a little deeper in the park, you kind of lose the sound of the surf. However, There is a monument, which we can find, that involves water. It's the Hunley Monument, which has a spout with water coming down like a small fountain, and then it trickles down into a pool, kind of like the fountain at the uh, Italian Gardens in Cleveland there. And if you're a short distance away from it, you know, 20, 30 feet, you can hear it dripping down into there. That could be the sound of water. But what I want to know and discuss with you, George, is why the adjective cool? Why is it a cool song of water? You have any clue? It's a poetic way of saying it. I, I, don't, I mean, that's a pretty common phrase, right? Cool water. If you're talking about Appalachian music or bad smelling cologne, sure. I don't think every single word in this needs to be a clue for something. It could, I mean, you got to make a poem. So it's got to be poetic. You're saying that he probably is referring to the fountain or the surf? One of the two. Without cool mattering. 
One of the two. Yeah, without cool mattering. It would have to be one of the two. All right, so the next line. Hearken to the words. Translated from turn-of-the-century English, the term hearken means to listen, hear, or regard. TJ refers to the monument dedicated to the poet and author William Gilmore Sims, who wrote several poems which include the word hearken, but with a different spelling, H-E-A-R-K-E-N, whereas in the verse we have uh, H-A-R-K-E-N or something like that. Yeah. The Sims Monument sits in the center walkway of White Point Gardens. I've looked at it many times other than the maybe the poem reference, but we only have the one word. It holds as much cool water as the Orson Welles uh, analogy that I gave for Milwaukee. So it's hard to say that he's referring to Sims. I I don't know. It may tie into the next verse line here, which is freedom at the birth of a century. This line we can, by context of where we are, attribute to the Emancipation Proclamation, and I'll tell you why. It goes back to U.S. history. Under Lincoln's plan of gradual emancipation with compensation, all slaves in the United States would have been free by the year 1900. In December 1862, Lincoln gave both the border states and the Confederacy one last chance In his address to Congress, he suggested a constitutional amendment under which states abolishing slavery before January 1st, 1900 would be somehow compensated. It was Lincoln's plan that by the birth of the new century that all men and women shall be free and slavery would be but an evil mark on our history. But it would be history. At the birth of a new century, it would be behind us. In reality, it happened 30-some years earlier in most places. The predominantly African-American city of Charleston, they held parades to celebrate this every year, and it's the oldest running parade to celebrate this day. Guess where the parade ended up, George? Where? White Point Garden. Wow. There's some quotes from the New York Times and the Atlantic here about it. During the first few years, thousands of black families packed Marion Square and White Point Garden at the Battery with bands, vendors, soldiers in uniform, speeches. The parades were huge and festive back then. Uh, It was an all-day event that drew thousands of people even in the rain. That's the New York Times. The Atlantic says the most extraordinary festivities were held in Charleston, South Carolina, the majority black city where Southern secession and the Civil War had begun. At the 1865 commemoration in Charleston, one speaker noted the altered meaning of the holiday for black Americans who could at last bask in the sunshine of liberty. There's parades and celebrations going all the way back to the end of the Civil War to celebrate this day, and they all ended up in White Point Garden. So there's some history for you. Let me tell you why that has nothing to do with the secret. The next line in this verse starts with or. There's a lot of lines that start with or. It's very strange. There's two lines that start with or. The next line starts with or. It says, freedom at the birth of the century or 1913. Okay. So 1913 is obviously calling out the USS Maine, the capstan, right? I agree with that, yes. The capstan, which was on a ship which sank in 1898 during the Cuban War for Independence. Okay. It sank during Cuba's independence at the birth of a century, 1898 or 1913, when the capstan was put there. Those two verses are referencing each other. I think that's an extremely interesting catch there. Well, it's the simplest. (laughs) But my theory kind of falls through when you get to the next part of the verse where it talks about Edwina Edwina named after him. 
because right after that, it's or on the eight, the scene where law defended and those don't seem to reference each other. The Edwin and Edwina thing, I think you can just remove. I don't think we need to, to tend to that anymore. It was the one thing that gave us Charleston for the verse. Without it, we wouldn't have a way to match this verse to Charleston. So right. if you just take it out of there. So yeah, or May 1913, the capstan. Uh, it was moved to White Point Garden in 1927. It moved out in 2007, replaced by... Uh, Moultrie. Yeah, Moultrie. It contained the actual text from the verse on a plaque on the side of the capstan base. This was located on East Battery, uh, just a ways down from the corner from the Confederate Defenders Memorial, which could lead us to our next line. Or on the 8th, a scene where law defended. It's actually two lines. TJ has one interesting thing for this. I have another interesting thing for this. I'm sure George probably has another interesting thing. So we'll start with TJ's. Uh, June 28th, 1776, on the plaque of the Sergeant Jasper Monument. There's a Sergeant Jasper Monument located in the park, kind of along the center way, which has this plaque saying June 28th, 1776, distinguished himself in the defense of Fort Moultrie on June 28th, 1776, against the British attack on Fort Sullivan. However, we could also tie this line to the Confederate Defenders Monument as well, which is an eight-sided monument with a battle scene depicted all around it. This is the monument that sits on the corner of East Battery and Murray. In addition, the battery as a whole used to be a fortification for defenses for the harbor during the Civil War. George, what did you come up with? I mean, you had a separate thing for that too as well, didn't you? No, no, I was with the Defender statue. You know what's cool about the Defender statue? If you walk up to the steps of the Defender statue, you're basically looking at panel number one of the statue. Do you know what that panel says in huge letters to you right when you walk up to it? What's on it, George? Count them. The first two words on that are just count them. You walk around, that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. When you get to the eighth, you get to what is kind of uh, assumed to be that little relief in the... uh, Oh, the forehead? The forehead, yeah. Where it's like the one dude sort of working or whatever. That's on the 8th. Hey, uh, Kit, call your dad and ask him what that thing on the lion's forehead is. Which one? The one in the middle there? Yeah, the thing that looks like a dude holding a hammer or whatever. I'm pretty sure it'll just hang up. If I ask him, he'll just straight up hang up. (laughs) Yeah. We just wanted to bring you in. We wanted to make sure you weren't sleeping. <laughs> no, I'm still here. I would like to note that I didn't ask that. I am not the rude one. <laughs> John, if he beats me, um, I'll just take it on in you, okay? He's going to make your painting suck. Oh, great. Yeah. Perfect. He's going to beat me with a shovel. <laughs> well, Bury no. the cask and me. <laughs> the real treasure is in Kit Palancar's backyard. <laughs> shh, shh, don't talk about that. All right. So the next line, between two arms extended. This also gets interesting. Another tricky line, considering you're in a park with cannons all around it and statues with arms extending all over the place. I mean, how do we define arms? Is he referencing cannons? Which ones? The ones in the park or the ones in the wings of the ferry in the image? If it's cannons in the park, which ones are they? There's literally like 22 of them around the park. That Japanese clue for this was so weird, too. What was it like? Arms can be arms no matter what angle they're at. It was super weird. Oh, well, that makes a lot of sense. I, You know what? I had never heard that one till now. 
Ar- what is it? Arms can be arms? I don't remember off the top of my head, but it's something <laughs> like arms can be arms no matter what angle they're at, or arms are arms no matter what angle. Well, this is interesting. So if he means statue arms, there are less of those to choose from, which extend. There's two, as a matter of fact. There's the Jasper statue, which has an arm extending, and there's the Confederate Defenders Monument, which also has an arm extending. Uh, interestingly enough, with TJ's theory and me and George's theory, both of those statues can be attributed to on the eighth scene where Law defended. The extended arm of the Sergeant Jasper Monument and the extended arm of the soldier on the Confederate Defenders Monument on the southeast corner of the park Between those arms, you have the area of the southeastmost section of the park, uh, divided by the paths and containing the Daughters of the Confederacy Monument. We're dealing with the diamond here. By Byron's own words, one of the harder ones to do because the rarer stones will be more difficult, as he said in the uh, newspaper article. So we'll just take him at his word. This takes us to what we believe to be some final dig instructions on where we should dig. Below the bar that binds is the first one we get. Uh, The most probable option here, with the most realistic options available in White Point Garden, is something literal, physical, and simple. I, I think George would agree with that. Yeah, I think even the Japanese translation clues were like, a bar that binds is a bar that holds two things together. Right, something mechanical, holding something together. Yeah, pretty literal. We've looked around for this thing for a long, long time, and George happened to find something. We'll get to that in a bit, but as far as the bar that binds, we've tried to attribute that to the earthquake bolts in the buildings around White Point Garden and in Charleston. We've tried to attribute it to anything we could find (laughs) railings everything i never understood that when you guys kept talking about the earthquake bars i've never seen an earthquake bar on any of the houses around whitebone gardens at least in the general area where we're looking like white house to the end of the the block i've never seen any earthquake bars i don't know if maybe there were some and they've been removed or what but we were looking at at washington square when we were looking at that uh particular solve for the bar that binds. I, I think you're right. I didn't think there were any. And it's strange because Charleston has these, these earthquake bolts are very decorative in some areas, especially in old Charleston. Some of them have lion's heads on them, <laughs> diamond shapes, stars, all kinds of stuff. So they're very decorative, but I think you're right, George. I don't think there's any on the houses around White Point Garden. Those are all giant, like ginormous mansion type houses around that park. There's some interesting architecture, though. When I was down there during the hurricane, I found that it was the most death metal house I've ever seen in my entire life, right? <laughs> you're looking at this place. It's got two wrought iron gates, like huge gates, or maybe like eight feet tall. They're huge. And they look down this path that's got wisteria overgrowing in this arch. So you you have to walk down this arch of wisteria going over your head. So it's all creepy. It's super creepy and dark. And they've got the flickery lights in their their outside lanterns. And huge on each of these wrought iron gates are two giant red pentagrams. Like, it's the most death metal house. I was like, I have to live in this place right now. I didn't know that Glenn Danzig moved to Charleston. Somebody moved to Charleston. It's awesome. Like, I want that house so bad. (laughs) I'll have to find a picture of that. Beside the long palm shadow is the next thing we come to. Now, reading from TJ's notes, this verse likely means an actual palm tree shadow. There are palm trees all over the park. 
and a couple buy some of the guns. One happens to be several feet taller than most. They're different sizes. Since a shadow changes direction with the time of day, the best solution is to have a static shadow. So, I mean, there are lamps that are lit at night all over White Point Garden. Um, If you take the meaning less literally, it could mean near or under the tallest palm tree in the park. And if you want to look deeper down the rabbit hole, perhaps it refers to the hand palm of one of the statues in the park. And one could even be so bold as to consider that it's the shadow at 4 p.m., which is the time on the clock represented by the, the little Fort Sumner icon down there at the bottom. Now, I wanted to just talk real quick about this next line, which is embedded in the sand. There is one cannon there in the park that's a very special cannon. It's the cannon on the corner of East Battery and South Battery. It's the Columbad Cannon, which has a plaque stating the gun was raised from the sands of Sullivan's Island, ironically, which if taken in context with the next line embedded in the sand uh, could direct you to that gun. It makes the whole thing even more up for interpretation. And then we have this next line, White House close at hand. From TJ's report... There is a prominent house on Battery Street. It's well seen from the park. It's the Villa Margarita. The address is 4 South Battery. The house, or Fort Sumter Hotel, is directly across from and visible through the trees. It's a historic mansion that once housed several presidents, and the owner, Andrew Simmons, gave this house to his wife, Daisy as a wedding present. So remember we were talking about that kind of that strange irony that we keep finding as a theme in this verse with the pirates and then the cannon street and the, uh, the arms extended. There's just a ton of very vague wordplay, and this, you know, is no different. George, you've seen the White House that we're referring to, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it looks like a little miniature White House. It's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's strange. So The one thing we're not going to talk about is TJ's proposed dig site, as he still wants to excavate it himself if he can. However, I hope that going through the solution on the podcast with our commentary will help you hone down your own search, if not in this city, maybe others. And now we can get into George's uh, theories on what he found at White Point Garden. And kind of, you know, I'm, I'm sure some of them are very similar to what TJ has presented here. Uh, but you found a few unique things, right? Yeah, yeah. And I took this to be like everybody talks about, oh, this is a diamond. This is super, super difficult or whatever. I thought this was really easy. But then again, I dug and I didn't find anything. So obviously I was wrong. <laughs> How many times has that happened? I was thinking about this park. This park is laid out into squares. It's what, six squares total? Two sets of six squares for the length of the park. I figured this verse was just trying to get you, if it's going to get you to a dig spot, all of these squares are kind of similar. They're all the same shape. They're all the same size. They're divided by sidewalks. Relatively, yeah. It's like a grid. Yeah. If this verse wants to get you to a dig spot, it's going to have to get you to the correct square. A lot of the stuff in these squares are super similar. They all have the same benches, mostly. I mean, there's a couple of different types of benches, but for the most part, they've all got the same benches. They've all got cannons. They've all got arms extending. So what it's wanting you to do, just get to the correct square. If you're sitting on a park bench, it tells you to stand and listen to the birds. You stand up, there's a bench. It's got a bird on it, whatever. Where do you go from there? You just go down to the most obvious clue. It's May 1913. It's telling you to go to the side of the park where the capstan is because those words are literally right there. So you're at that end of the park. You're looking at the battery wall, the seawall. 
it tells you Edwin Ed- Edwina named after him or on the 8th, the scene where Law defended. That's all East Battery there. The entirety of the verse seems to be describing that side of the park to me. That's where you can hear the waves crashing in. You can hear the waves crashing in. On the other side, it, there's an inlet. If you're standing looking like at the capstan from inside the park to your right, it's a channel. There's no waves. You can't hear anything, right? The waves are going to be crashing in directly in front of you. That's where you're going to hear the water. Right. It's describing this end of the park. It wants you to be at this end of the park. And it's telling you between two arms extended. So if you're standing at this end of the park, there's three cannons. They all stick out really far. They're the largest cannons in the park by far. But you've got three to choose from. Yep. You have to be in between one of those two sets of cannons to find the bar that binds. You're taking this as the between two arms extended, meaning... The cannons. Extended out, right. Okay. So you have to be in between one of those two sets of cannons. If you're in between the first and the second cannon, you're standing staring at the main capstan, which is the old wiki solve, I believe, or is it still the wiki solve? That- yeah, it's kind of messed up because there were two palm trees there, one on each side of the capstan, and the taller one was removed, leaving only a single palm tree, which was the shorter one on the other side, and I think that's where the wiki was picking that up. Yeah, so this park before her and Yugo was very, very symmetrical. Every single palm tree that was in that park had a matching palm tree on the exact opposite side of that park, at least on that end. Yes, the older pictures prove that, yeah. Right, so if it tells you to dig below the bar that binds beside the long palm shadow, you've got two sets of benches with two palm trees on two separate areas of the park. Which one are you going to choose? Below that, it tells you embedded in the sand. You know it's next to the Columbad cannon. So that was my solve. There is one bench beside where a palm tree used to be, right beside the Columbad cannon, where if you stand there, you can see every single thing in this verse. To me, if you apply all of these parts of the verse, the only place everything applies is that park bench right beside the Columbad cannon. And I trenched every single area of that and I found nothing. I take that back. During the hurricane, I probed and I hit this super, it was like an eight inch square, super flat, super smooth thing. I got really excited. I ran back to the car and I got my shovel and I dug it up and it was a piece of cut, finished, polished marble. Like why is there cut marble buried in White Point Gardens? (laughs) That's the only thing I found. Um, I think Brian wanted me to mention this. At one point, while digging in White Point Gardens, I did find some plexiglass, but oh yeah, I, but I didn't. I didn't find anything else. Like there were some just junk pieces of like landscaping facade mixed in and stuff like that, right? It might have just been junk, but it got us very excited for a while. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I've dug that whole area. I can't find anything. So obviously, I'm wrong. I think it's fair to point out that doing some historical research, and TJ showed me this picture, there was a point in time where there was a giant sewer pipe that they, there's a humongous sewer pipe that basically goes right underneath White Point Garden. Yeah, there, there's my sewer pipe. You're talking about the maybe 20 feet wide. It's humongous. It runs directly in front like it, on the park side of the capstan and it runs right to like the column bad, right, right, right underneath it. I mean, it runs right through that area. To be fair, it could have been dug up and scattered all over the park at this point. So, you know, so when you get to that area, there's only two different bars that bind things together that have dirt underneath them. 
at the front of the columbad, there is one bar that holds the wheels, which holds the front of the columbad together. And then in the center of the columbad, there is a bar that does absolutely nothing but hold the columbad together. Right. And then if you look at the bench on the water side of the park, have nothing on them besides wood holding the sides of the benches together. But if you go to the be- any of the other benches away from the water, you see these little iron bars that run across the back of the bench that hold the two sides of the benches together. I talked to a park guy who said that on the water side of that, those just rusted out and they rusted out a while ago. So I would imagine, you know, 20 years or whatever. I'm not really sure. I'm sure they constantly replace them or it probably did at one point. No, all of the metal bars that are on the other benches, you can tell they've been there since those benches were installed. They're pitted and rusted and parts of them are missing just from, you know, salt water attacking them over the years. When the ones on the battery side finally gave out, they just took them out and never put them back. I took one of those three things to be the bar that binds. Either the bar that binds the two sides of the benches together or one of the two bars that binds the column bad together. But like I said, I dug, I found nothing. So who knows? Well, then there's still one out there. There is still one out there, maybe. Maybe scattered around the park. We'll see. It's probably in that grave at the fort. (laughs) Right. Why don't we talk about the image for a second? There's a lot of things going on in the image. We covered the pair the lion, the wings of the fairy containing the bird and the benches, the cannonballs uh, in the fairy's wings, the cannons in the fairy's wings, uh, as well as the white points possibly to convey White Point Garden. We found the four sets of numbers for latitude and longitude in the lion's mane, the live oak branch, which could represent the dozens of live oak trees growing in White Point Garden, or some feel that it could be part of a map which shows a, a specific highway Uh, that leads to Sullivan's Island, strangely enough. It could be. I don't know. The crazy thing about this one is that the image and the verse all have hidden clues which seem very vague. However, when you look at them in the context of the city of Charleston, uh, they start to make a little more sense. Is there anything else in the image that we didn't go over that was in there? Maybe we should ask Kit. (laughs) There's some stuff in the, it looks like there's writing in the main, you know, but it doesn't seem like Like the New York image, for instance, is kind of vague. There's not a lot that you can point out. Five or six things that are obviously New York. In this one, there's a lot of super obvious stuff. The city of Charleston is very obvious. The pair for Pearman Bridge is very obvious. The fort in the image. Right. But the big things, like as soon as this obviously gets you to Charleston, and then once you get to Charleston, the verse is descriptive enough where you don't really need this, this painting anymore. Right, that verse is very descriptive. But then again, I'm a person who dug and didn't find anything. So right. Know. Well, to be fair, there is the the little icon of Fort Sumter at the bottom. It has some strange goings on in there. It's got some teeth, what look like teeth, which are a bunch of uh, triangles put together. Then it has, I think, the French flag colors. It was that Fort Moultrie, right? French flag colors, red, white, and blue, but in a different order. I thought that somebody had found a, a sign out at Fort Moultrie that had those the same colors on there represented. And then it has what looks like clock hands at 4 o'clock, or some people think that it's like a pole sticking up showing a shadow. Beside the African mask, it's got the weird thing that looks like sunglasses, which I always thought was kind of a pulley of some sort. I don't know. Oh, yeah, it's got that, that weird H going there, and then it has a, a stick coming off the, the right side of the image that has like a rope looped around it, some kind of a weird... Yeah. 
some bolts. There's a bunch of bolts, like uh, screw bolts or, or screw heads that were in there. That's what we thought were the earthquake bolts, the eyes of the Fort Sumner clock guy thing. Maybe you don't need these things, but after digging and not finding anything, maybe you do. Maybe we just need to figure out what these things are. Oh, I would say we probably do. <laughs> I think we should complain to the palancars that they should make clearer painting. <laughs> <laughs> Our buddy's back. Now, uh, why don't we get to some questions with Kit Palancar? If we didn't put him to sleep, are you still awake? <laughs> no, I'm still here. I have, I don't know. Uh, the, there are certain things in these images that you start to just, and I'm sure it's happening if you guys have been working on this for as long as you say you have, you just like start to see things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You really do. You have no idea. Things that aren't even there. Like, I'm looking at this image right now. There's, like, this shape next to the pair to the right of it that looks almost symmetrical, that looks, like, on purpose. There are certain design choices that happen in a painting that have certain shapes to them and certain edges that bring them either they recede to the back and the background, just little formal or technical elements in drawing and painting that they either recede into the background or they come forward, and there's certain emphasis on certain elements lines that go around objects, stuff like that. So looking at some of these with, like I wouldn't say clean, fresh eyes, but just a different gaze, I guess. Well, I would say it's completely different. I mean, you grew up learning from your dad and seeing his art all the time. I'm sure that you probably see those images way differently than any of us do. Maybe you're looking at technique or things he taught you that you see in there. It's got to be a little strange looking at them from that perspective. It's so weird. You know, I tell my buddies about the work that he's done or they come over to my house and they see that it's almost like a museum with all these paintings on the wall. And they're like, oh, my God, you know, this is insane. And I'm like, yeah, nothing special. You know, I feel like I take it for granted sometimes. That, I guess that leads into our first question. What was it like growing up in the Palancar house? First of all, what was it like? How did you get into wanting to be an artist? How did that go about? What did he teach you? What did he pass on to you? What did you pick up from him early on going into it? It was really really difficult and more difficult than I probably remember. <laughs> My mother and I just had a conversation about critiques the other day. When you talk about someone else's work that they put out, you know, it has to be constructive. My mom was telling me that at 18 months old, he was already critiquing my drawing. <laughs> he was already talking about, you know, like, ah, you shouldn't do this or yeah, this is cool. <laughs> so that's been my whole life. It's kind of a blessing and a curse, you know, to have this resource. I felt like I was always making art and painting and drawing for just my dad's approval so that he would accept it. And I wasn't learning anything about concept or my own ideas or, or what I feel like I should make art about. It happened in grad school when my faculty, they told me to stop taking art home. <laughs> I would just make art in my studio and I would keep it private. And it was honestly one of the best decisions that I made in my artistic career was not making art to just make them happy. It was art that made me happy. Well, I'm sure though, once that washed off, you realized that he had probably pounded in technique into your head so well that you were able to pick that up. Mm -hmm. You graduated from University of Akron. You taught at Kent State for a while and now teach at Akron. And you've won a few scholarships, the Whitaker Foundation for some work with watercolors. Yeah. Another one from the Meyer School in Akron. What was that for? The Meyer School of Art won every year they have like a scholarship competition for, I think, every department but basically you get a section of wall that's like five feet wide by however tall you want and basically you 
take all of your art, whether you're sculpture or ceramics or painting and drawing, and you just you have a display that goes up, and they award prizes or grants. You know, you could go to the Venice Biennale. You could get money. I think I got a $2,000 scholarship, which was for undergraduates. They divided it like freshman, sophomore were undergraduates, and then you had upperclassmen, which are juniors and seniors. And I got, I think, two grand for that scholarship. Then the uh, Whitaker Foundation one, I forgot how I found out about that. But the first medium I learned was watercolor with my dad. We were in Ireland in 1999. We would paint with watercolors. I still have my original watercolor set from there to do it hanging around somewhere. They're all dried up. But, I mean, you can still use them. Anyway, I like submitted some watercolors off to this foundation because the family has been known for their watercolors. I got the top scholarship. It was $2,000. Just a check mailed to me. <laughs> that was kind of nice to get. So you got it in the mail. You're like, they're going to be sorry they did this. Yeah, I was like, man, <laughs> what am I going to blow that on? This, it was really humbling to realize that your art does matter. It's more than just, you know, your art does get out there and it does get seen and it does affect people. I mean, because of your dad's success, you're probably going to have to deal with that shadow for a while. Absolutely. It's kind of a fact of your life. You do some fantastic art. And Thank I'm you. sure as the people will see on this painting that we're working on for the, that you're working on for the <laughs> tribute hunt, it's just going to be a fantastic work. I've seen some of the sketches. It's, it's going to be awesome. Trust me. Ironically, I remember you talking to me a few years ago about one time when you were much younger, you actually tried to work on The Secret. Like, how did that come about? Did you make any progress? Or, t tell the people how tight-lipped your dad was about sharing info, even with you. At a very little age, you know, I would look at these paintings and, you know, I remember being very little. The only thing he talked to me about, question, when was the Cleveland one found? I think it was 2004. Okay. Probably way before that, then, when I was maybe eight or nine years old, I remember we were looking at the Cleveland painting, and I remember he turned the image upside down and was like, hey, you know, what's, what's that in the trees there? And I was like, I don't, I don't know. I'm too young to know that. And he was like, it's the Terminal Tower in Cleveland. And, you know, look at the, the little outline of Ohio with Interstate 71 rolling through it and everything. And I was like, wow, you know, this is magical stuff. This is better than highlights. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not supposed to know what that is. I'm not that old. Come on to, you know, make fun of you. But at some point with you, thanks, sir. <laughs> sir, excuse me, elder. But at some point when you were a little older, did you not try to, to pick up the book and, and try to work on it a little bit? Oh, I did, but I didn't pick up the book. I picked up the actual right, what, right. paintings, which fascinating. So it was about, I think maybe about two years ago, I was dating a girl at a time and she had gone to this, she was on the wine train that takes you through all these different wineries in Napa Valley. And she sent me photos from this winery called Dariush Winery. I remember you telling me about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was so psyched about it. It's a Persian winery, and I was showing my dad these photographs of it, and he was like, wait, go back for a second. And I was like, what? What about it? And he's like, that looks a little familiar, doesn't it? And at first, I was like, "I, what are you talking about? And then after I left his studio, I was like, that son of a bitch. <laughs> I went straight to the, the paintings, and I was like flipping through them. I found the the image that's tied to you know the Persian immigration story, and the columns like matched up exactly. And I sat in front of my computer for like six to eight hours looking at overhead maps on Google and compiling all this information and photographs and doing overlays of the image on top of these <laughs> maps and the painting. 
And I was going out of my mind and I was like telling everybody I knew. I was like, guys, come to, come to my apartment. Check this out real quick. George told you it'll ruin your life. Yeah, oh, it will. It'll destroy it. After some time, I was like, I'm so far behind the times and I'm probably not old enough to understand some of the references or landmarks. It's not for me. I, I can't do it. That's why John's good at it. He's old enough to understand the references. <laughs> <laughs> I got a question. Um, your dad's going to love this reference. I'm imagining what it's like to be like Bob Dylan's son, right? The dude from the Wallflowers who comes home and it's like, hey, dad, I want an MTV Music Award. And it's Bob Dylan who's like, I don't give a shit about an MTV Music Award. <laughs> Bob Dylan's son's art is so different from his father's because of his father, you know, because growing up in that shadow, your art is completely different from your father's, right? Like your father's very meticulous and, and sort of detail oriented. Your art sort of like if I were to give it a vibe, not the same technique by any means but it's like is it dave mckean the dude who does the sandman covers like I, I sort of get that kind of vibe from your art do you think that growing up with your father and i know you were saying you know him critiquing your art and you keeping your art away from him to to keep that critique from coming do you think that sort of pushed you into more just getting away from his style a really good question george thank you I think stylistically, I, I, you know, I could paint just like him if I wanted to. And you're gonna. <laughs> I'm going to, especially for this cover. Painters tend to paint what they feel and what they see and what they love, right? So obviously what you feel, what you see, what you love is going to be different, you know, from your father's. Mm -hmm. It's a different story, too. You know, he has his bachelor's of fine arts degree and then pretty much just went straight into illustration, which means you get contracts of hey, you're supposed to do this and it's supposed to have this in the image and here's some sketches that I'm going to send off and those get approved and then you do a painting about it. And after getting my master's degree, it's like he has quite the imagination for his own fine artwork. But I had to kind of formulate my own ideas, like what I wanted to make art about. So the subject matter does reflect in the way it's painted or the technique that it's done. And I think I'll always be a representational artist no matter what because I grew up seeing you know, whether it's like horrific HP Lovecraft stuff. I'm like six years old seeing um, <laughs> mutilated bodies hanging on hooks with severed legs and naked females. You know, I grew up seeing, you know, whether it's nudity or, or horror or sci-fi stuff, it's all representational though. One of my biggest inspirations and things that I pull from is nudity and nude figure drawing. I love that. There's a session that takes place at Kent State like every Friday and I try to make it there and I'll just draw the figure for two hours. Just something about figurative art. So I think I'll always be, you know, in terms of style, reminiscent towards my father's work with representationalism and figurative work with, you know, some sort of Anurjum-esque or Wyeth-esque landscape. I've just got to ask this. Because of the house you grew up in, what your father does in sort of the circles he ran in, you had to have an interesting childhood. Was it sort of like every Saturday Uncle Giger comes over or what was living in, in a house with the kind of circle your father ran in like like i would imagine like all of my sci-fi heroes or all of my horror heroes were your, your your dad's best friend and were over at your house every day or what you know it was i don't want to say difficult if i can be honest i think i definitely squandered what i had when i was younger i didn't really know how to appreciate what i had right in front of me my dad and i you know we would do a couple lessons here and there like he, he sat down with me and we did a watercolor together or I would have my stuff set up at his studio and I would paint over there. You know, he would come over and check out my stuff and look and say, hey, this is not working or this is not working. This is working, et cetera. 
I think I, I don't want to say goofed around too much, but I didn't take it as seriously as I do now, or at least up until I got into like end of high school, yeah. early undergraduate career. I really just, I kind of relied on him thinking that my dad's this good. I'll end up this good. I didn't understand how hard he worked to get to where he was. Is it different now that you've put in a lot of work on your own? Does he kind of talk about your art or critique it, so to speak, or just discuss it differently than he used to? I don't, he doesn't critique it differently nowadays. He understands like where I'm trying to go with it and what I'm painting and how I'm painting it. And, you know, he says, Hey, this one's really, that's a really good drawing you did, you know, the other day or whatever, you know, he'll, he'll follow up with me. He'll be like, but you know, you got to watch out for yada, yada, yada. I'm like, oh, okay. All right. I know <laughs> he, he's letting me evolve a little bit more on my own. And I'm sure I've made him proud. That's really all I want to do is make him proud. You know, I want to work as hard as him. Speaking of that, you and I are working on this project, which we can't say too much about right now. But when we were planning this out earlier this year, you mentioned that it was kind of important to you personally to get on board with this, to kind of carry on the legacy. Now, how does it feel to be actually doing this now where you're, you're kind of stepping into his footsteps? And I mean, is it a kind of a weird thing for you that now you're kind of following in his footsteps and carrying on the legacy of something really cool that he did when he was younger? It's maybe one of the easiest projects I've done, but also the hardest. It's like, the thing that you have to treat with the utmost respect that you're working on this project and it's got such a legacy to it. You just want it to be as correct as possible. And that was like our running theme when we were working on it. We we're just so concerned about it being right. Right. Right and authentic and, you know, true to the old thing. Although it is fun because I just want to do it better. You know, I want to make a better paint, which is <laughs> very hard to top. Now that I'm out of graduate school, he's my competition. <laughs> Right. Um, he's no longer my dad. He's my competition. That's actually hilarious. <laughs> yeah, it's it's crazy. I can imagine that competition. You sitting, you know, at an easel or wherever you paint, your dad comes and looks at it, and you just be like, just go paint another dragon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There might <laughs> calm down. All right. Just all right. All right. Sorry. Not get a drink. <laughs> You're gonna get a heart attack, man. Yeah, that was another thing. Was the Aragon Inheritance series. I still get people. I, my dad actually just signed a box set of books that my I have a like a personal guy that cuts my hair, and I was like showing him my art, and I was like, yeah, you know, my dad's an artist. He did blah these covers, and he was like, oh my god, can you sign these books? And I was like, you have them? And he said, yeah, I'm gonna go get them right now. And he was super excited, and he ran back inside and came out with his box set, and I just set them on the kitchen table, and my dad signed them overnight, and I still they're in my car, they're in my trunk. I gotta take them back to him eventually at some point, but. <laughs> Uh, I mean, that's kind of a cultural phenomenon now. Like, it's got to be cool to be a part of that, you know, for your dad, obviously. It is cool, but I just, I want to make a name for myself, you know? It's, yeah. the, it's like the last name thing is Palancar. Who do you think of? My dad, not me yet. Yeah, Hopefully, yeah, you know, maybe after this, this tribute hunt and everything. We had discussed if we didn't screw this one up too bad, maybe we'd try and... Uh and do another one or maybe a series or something but that would be the coolest shit that would be so cool yeah. down the road maybe but i mean i i wanted to ask that so you were born in 98 99 when was it 92 oh 92 isn't that scary that people born in the year 2000 are 18 years old <laughs> yeah it is trust me it's very scary all right so you were of some age i just wanted to point out that some of your dad's more notable work, uh, of course, we were just talking about the Polini Inheritance series, which is Aragon, and he did the the Lovecraft stuff, the Dream Cycle, and mm -hmm. some other works. Aside from that, 
he has kind of a musical thing going on too. He plays keyboards, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I noticed that in 2001, he did nine book covers or nine books. Maybe he did. Maybe he's more than the cover. He's listed as as nine works in 2001. Nine different books. Is he in the studio just working all the time? It was probably actually more than nine. Honestly, are you get? Is that from? Like Wikipedia. That was just from Wikipedia, yeah. That list is like... Is that truncated, that list? Yes, extremely. He's probably done, maybe this year alone, maybe 20 to to 30 different works. Like, if you think he did the Game of Thrones calendar that just came out, um, what, in uh, June or, or July, I believe? That's not just a collection? Like, he was... That's not something he's been doing for a long time. They just collected and got it on a calendar? How, how, how long has he been working on it? I think that started maybe er, last year or so. Wow. So that was 12 paintings in, you know, maybe 10 months or so. Jeez. And then he's got other stuff going on. He's got his own personal fine art that he works on. He has, I think, three paintings right now working in his studio. Maybe even more that I haven't seen because he, like, hides stuff away. He doesn't want anybody to see, even me. Um <laughs> So he'll have stuff hidden away. So he probably does much more than that, you know, per year. That's incredible. I mean, that's it's like a machine. And then plus he goes to all these conventions and stuff. Do you ever tag along to the conventions and the shows? I did for one of them, which was AluxCon, which is an illustrators convention that was taking place. And it was in Altoona. And then I think it moved to Reading, Pennsylvania. I remember I tagged along with him one time and I didn't have to buy a ticket or anything. That's always nice. I think the badge is like 260 some dollars or something and so i was just like a visitor and it was kind of funny because i helped him hang up his booth and usually he has other people help him he gets there with all of his work and he's always late he's always running last minute late and <laughs> so he's like rushing with all of his paintings i'm helping him and we're working on getting everything hung up like the day of the first day he's got a very erratic sleep schedule you kind of have to you have to work when it hits you you have to paint when you you feel it so i would wake up early ass crack of dawn uh maybe like eight or nine a.m i'd go open up his booth for him and i'd try to sell prints books paintings you know small stuff like that then he would come strolling on in i'd be sketching there at the booth and working on my laptop and you know he would come strolling by and then it would start to pick up a little bit and um, <laughs> it was really funny it was nice to be there with him oh look he's here now yeah 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 <laughs> but you know he would he would kind of talk me up a little bit you know he would it was, it was really nice he'd, he'd tell people about where i am and, and what i'm doing and it's a good experience and i wish i could do it again but i think he i think he's done doing that at convention but uh you'll be doing your own pretty soon hopefully hopefully i think so yeah you know, for the people out there listening, I had a chance to meet your dad, albeit a, it was a brief encounter. He's a good, honorable guy. He's a busy artist. I just wanted to say that, you know, he's made it known that he doesn't have anything to give people as far as answers or solutions. He doesn't know where anything is. The man's a good person. We should respect that request by him and, and honor his privacy. That being said, aside from the aggravation of random calls and emails that he gets, <laughs> From your perspective, do you think he's a little amazed by the fact that this thing's still going on and it's more popular now than it was in the past? You know, that is a very difficult question. I'm sure he is a little bit amazed, but I think he's just annoyed more than anything that it's that it's still a thing. And it gets to the <laughs> point where we just got a call, I think maybe four or five days ago, they left a very long message about the secret. They... They find your phone number? Yeah. Oh, my God. 
I, I don't That's... know if we've gotten any handwritten letters. He gets emails all the time, and I think it gets to the point where he doesn't even answer. He just like ignores them. You got to be desensitized to it at some point when you know everyone on the planet is hammering you for information, and mm-hmm. and also I don't think he got a fair shake on the expedition unknown thing in some of the interviews I've seen. Your dad's a very charismatic kind of you know strong willed guy. I, I think that. They did some creative editing on some of those interviews because... Yeah, that was hysterical on some of them. He definitely is not. The person I saw on the Expedition Unknown episode is not the guy I met that day, for sure. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Uh, totally different character in, in certain situations. But also, I'm going to say the same thing. Please stop emailing me, because I get emails too, uh, and you know messages. I think it's so weird. You and your dad, you're just people, you know? And you've made it very very clear like your dad's made it very very clear i don't know anything please leave me alone i i it's just weird that people won't respect that the guy's already said like don't email me i'm not going to tell you anything what do you think you're going to get from him by 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 you know not following his instruction like i don't i just don't understand I'm sure that you, little Steve, he will answer you. No one else, but you he's going to answer because you're special. He doesn't tell me anything at all, ever. I actually love that about your dad. And it's something that I love. It's something that I love about The Secret in general. Like I've always said that learning more and more, talking to people who did this book, this seems like a group of friends who got together and just did something cool. And I love the fact that your dad's like, no, Byron's my friend. He asked me not to say anything, and I'm not going to. I love that about it. And we should respect him, too. I mean, it, even if he does know, it's just a matter of respect, you know, yeah. for his, his friend. The man's busy. Obviously, he's done 12 paintings already this year. Something like that. Probably more. He gets up. He works whenever he wants to. He sleeps whenever. Whenever inspiration hits, he hits his studio. Let the man do his art. Plus, I'm sure I'm going to have to run into it, too, with this tribute. Hunt. Right. Oh, well, yeah, you'll probably get some of it. Yeah. Doesn't have time to answer your email. There are dragons to paint. <laughs> there are, yes, there are. We could just edit it a little bit. Each time we send it to somebody, we just change one word. And then by the time it gets to my dad, it's just like a totally different story. Bill stole the red potato. Yeah, I don't know what this means. <laughs> so, what is this potato? No, hanging <laughs> off this first tree, tree name. All right. We're running a little bit long here. But before we wrap up, let's just give a quick update on this tribute hunt that's going on. You're working on the painting. I'm getting the verse together. The cask and the box are being painted and constructed. I'm actually going to have some pictures to post up very soon of the entire painted cask. It's just being sealed now with a a nice sealant to keep all the color so it doesn't fade. It looks fantastic, so I'm going to show some pictures of that. The watertight, airtight, impenetrable box is being built. We're going to Tim Allen the whole thing. We've stepped it up. It's going to be half-inch plexi. It's screwed together with non-metal detector screws. There's nothing that's going to destroy this one, I promise you. It's being done right now. It's all being constructed right now. The new news is that I've recently received a donation of a giant hoard of uncut rough precious stones, including ruby, sapphire, and garnet, to be added to the main prize. So in total, the prize for finding the cask and turning in the key 
is the three carat pink tourmaline gem, 10 bars of 0.999 fine silver donated by Forest Blight. And now this hoard of close to 100 precious stones made by an anonymous donor. For the story purposes, we'll just say that they came from the elves who forged the original 12 casts. And it's not my intention to build this thing up like a fen chest, as I've said before, but if people want to donate, I mean, I'm happy to add it to the, the hall. I, I, the more, the better. But in addition, I've talked to Ben Asen, uh, the photographer from The Secret and our guest from a few episodes ago. He's going to professionally photograph the finished painting in high definition so that there won't be any mistaking a transfer imperfection for a clue. The image we release will be of the highest quality. And, you know, speaking from experience, the, the images that we see versus the images that your dad painted, even in the original book, there's a huge discrepancy in quality. The original paintings are just crystal clear, beautiful lines. I mean, everything just looks amazing. So we want to duplicate that with what we're doing here so that you get the full high-res quality image with no blurs or nothing like that. So since Kid and I are making this, I'm going to open this up to George. Is there anything that you want to ask us about this tribute hunt? This will be the first we're opening up to talk about it here. Yeah, where, where are you going to bury this thing? <laughs> yeah, it's going to uh, be in North America. Somewhere, Yeah, somewhere in North America. That's what, enough questions. No, no, no. What kind of process are you going through with this? Like, say you release the the verse and the painting what do you expect someone to do in order to like once they dig this up what's once somebody digs this up what's going to happen the way we're it's being set up i'll show this actually kit and i are going to we have a movie date coming up at two weeks sunday to go see uh the the documentary film in chagrin falls and i'm gonna i'm quite nervous i haven't been on a date in quite a long time <laughs> you're gonna be immortalized on the screen hopefully i won't be <laughs> I'm going to bring the finished thing with me to, to the documentary. So if anybody out there is going to see the Chagrin Falls Film Festival airing of the documentary and you want to take a look at the cask, it'll be there with me and Kit. But what it's going to be is the inside, like I said, we're building a reinforced box. It's going to be a half-inch plexiglass box that's siliconed and, and fastened together. And on the inside of it, it's going to have some foam, like pull foam around it. So nothing can get broken and transported. Everything kind of stays put. And then on the top of the box, on the inside of the plexiglass, will be a kind of a, a note from us, a congratulations note. And then there will be an email a secret email address, which only I have and is connected to my personal email. So until someone sends me that email, it will be still in the ground. If you find it, there will be that contact info for you there. But I mean, obviously, if you post a big picture of you holding the thing onto our Facebook group, that would pretty much signify that you have it. <laughs> so that's that's how we're going to do it. And also, I, I just I'm going to say there's a little added caveat to the hunt. Not only will you need a shovel, but you'll also need to bring a screwdriver. We've screwed this thing shut with some stainless steel screws of a sort that we tested on like four different metal detectors. You can't pick them up. I mean, you can try if you want, but it, you're not going to find them. So we've sealed the top on with these screws to keep it watertight, airtight, and you know, so hopefully so in 40 years from now, somebody will be able to dig it up and it'll still be in the same condition. So you'll need a screwdriver in addition to a shovel. George, you'll have to go to Home Depot. I've got plenty of screwdrivers. Are we shooting for 40 years on this? 
Yeah, John's going to be long dead. His, you know, his age. He's getting up there. So he's going to be long dead. It's going to be me and you, Kit. We're going to have to take over this email address. I'm obviously going to kill myself with the amount of emails I'm going to get. <laughs> oh, God. You, you have no idea, man. You have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to contact Kit Palancar, his email address is... <laughs> so, yeah, there'll be instructions clearly written on the top of the box. Well, hopefully I'll get an email one day and somebody will, will get this thing. Hopefully. We'll do another one. For, for a change, I'm going to let George Ward close the show this month. George, it's all yours. The only reason people in Charleston think that Charleston oysters are good is because they've never had good oysters. Tune in next time for another edition of Shh, The Secret Podcast with your hosts, JM and Bernstein. Available on iTunes.